Uh, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 20 today. Luke chapter 20. I'm going to begin reading at verse 27. Luke chapter 20. In just a moment. We'll be looking at verse 27 through verse 40. You know, it's a good thing that I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and don't believe in omens because the events that surrounded Karen's and my wedding day and honeymoon uh, were not ideal, let's say, to the least. In fact, uh, somewhat concerning. Um, it was uh, during the spring of 1989, during a spring break from seminary studies that Karen and I scheduled our wedding and the plan was to be married on the first Saturday of break and then take a southern honeymoon as we navigated our way from East Tennessee back to Fort Worth, Texas. The week, especially the couple of days before our, our wedding on March 18th of 1989, uh, they were beautiful days. The rehearsal day was one of these days like today. It was just the nicest day sort of promising of spring that was coming that week. The problem was on our wedding day, it became overcast. We had a late afternoon wedding. There's a picture and you see the asphalt with water and puddles on it and you saw people and, and, and I thought, well, you know, that's not too bad. Well, we were married uh, that afternoon. We made our way about 20 uh, miles south to Chattanooga, Tennessee. We were gonna stay the first night as a married couple in Chattanooga. I arrived uh, at the hotel and met the clerk there, and I said, you know, I'm William R. Caldwell, have reservations here, and she said, uh-uh. So here I am trying to press my wife. I can't even get the honeymoon reservation straight. It took about 30 minutes, and we finally were able to get into the hotel room, but that was just the beginning of what was going to go bad. Um, we left that day to go to Memphis, Tennessee. It was about a six-hour drive from Chattanooga, Tennessee, across the state to Memphis, and we were going to stay at the famous uh, Peabody Hotel in Memphis, Tennessee. They're famous for the Peabody Ducks, and actually every morning the Ducks will process into their pool in the lobby area, and then you can go back in the evening, and they make their way somewhere outside of the hotel. I don't know where it is, but it's a fun place to be, only it wasn't fun for us because Karen became sick the second day that we were married. It, it became apparent the stress in the wedding. She didn't eat for a couple of days. Then we were married the first couple of days. We ate rich foods, and that's another uh, uh, point of uh, sharing that I do in my premarital counseling with these brides-to-be is be sure you eat in the preparation. And so she could not come out of the room uh, for those couple of days. And I've shared this story before. If you've been here, the funny thing is I'm on my honeymoon. I'm in the restaurant, the Peabody uh, Hotel, and someone comes up to me by myself and says, what are you doing here? I said, I'm on my honeymoon. And they gave me the funniest look. I'm thankful that those weren't a sign. We've had a wonderful marriage, at least I think we have. I hope Karen feels the same way. But you know, marriage is a wonderful thing. It's a gift from God. It's a gift to enjoy. Not everyone is married, uh, but marriage God gave as a purpose to fulfill 
his desires in our lives. In this journey through Luke, we're going to stop today and, and we're going to look at a different challenge. Many Jewish leaders have challenged Jesus, but here we see it's a different group. They were called the Sadducees. They were Jewish leaders, but they had issues with heaven. They had issues with the resurrection. And so these leaders, they were seeking to trap Jesus again, we'll see in a moment. They wanted to confuse him about the compatibility between marriage and heaven. And we see that they'll do something that no other group that has challenged Jesus to this point has done. They don't only challenge Jesus, but they challenge the written word of God. Look with me at Luke 20, beginning in verse 27. Some of the Sadducees who say there's no resurrection came up and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us, man's brother has a wife and dies childless. His brother should take the wife and produce offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. Also the second and the third took her. In the same way, all seven died and left no children. Now, I think if I were about the sixth guy, I would wonder if I would marry this woman because she didn't have a great track record with survivors. That's right, that's right. But verse 32, finally, the woman died too. And again, this is a hypothetical situation they're presenting. But the question was this, in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For all seven had married her. Jesus told them, the children of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to take part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they can no longer die because they are like angels and are children of God since they are children of the resurrection. Moses even indicated in the passage about the burning bush that the dead are raised where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, because all are living to him. Some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, and they no longer dared to ask him anything. Let's pray. Father, as we look to your word today, we thank you for the gift of marriage. But even more importantly, Lord, we thank you for the free gift of eternal life in heaven that you have promised to those who would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, as we look at this group, because of the hardness of their heart who did not understand about heaven, I pray that you would convince us through the power and convicting work of your spirit of the truth of heaven, of the place of heaven, of the greatness of heaven and its purpose. So, Lord, speak in these moments, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been with us, we're on this journey leading to Resurrection Sunday, and we're traveling through Luke's gospel. And Jesus here is fielding challenges again, this time from a liberal group. Now, the Pharisees and the scribes and the others, they would have been considered in that day a very religiously conservative. But today, we see a liberal group, the Sadducees, that were challenging them. And one of their liberal beliefs, unbiblical beliefs, 
was this. They did not believe in the resurrection. Now, the Pharisees who also opposed Jesus, they believed in the resurrection, but the Sadducees did not. In fact, uh, uh, one way I can differentiate between the Pharisees who believed in the resurrection and the Sadducees who did not is someone said the Sadducees uh, did not believe in the resurrection. They were sad you see. And so as we look here, Jesus is fielding these questions, this time from a liberal group. I couldn't help but give a shout out to Mary Emma from uh, last Sunday night because if I were a pianist, one of the most scary things for me would be to have people calling out any hymn out of the hymn book and me being able to play it. And she fielded it well. But Jesus here was doing the very same thing. These were not scripted. These were not questions that were given to the press beforehand. These were popcorn questions that were coming from all different types of groups as they were trying to challenge, to refute Jesus, and to discredit Jesus. But Jesus handles this situation as he has done with every other one to which we've looked. He redirects. He teaches doctrinal truths. Specifically here, he teaches about heaven and marriage and how the two would relate. And we're going to see that. But also we see that he quiets his questioners. We've seen more than once Jesus in his wisdom pivot and take the defensive position and turn it offensively. As they were seeking to back Jesus in a corner, he used it very proactively to teach the truth about heaven and about God's word. And I want to take just a few moments today to share some truths about heaven and about marriage as we see here in scripture. The first thing that's important for us to know, heaven is a real place. Heaven is a real place. You know, in these other confrontations that we've seen, Uh, They've attacked, as I said, Jesus. But here, there is not just an attack on Jesus, but a very direct attack on the teaching of Scripture. Because Scripture teaches about heaven. Scripture in the Old Testament teaches of heaven. The writer of Ecclesiastes said that God has placed eternity in our hearts. That God created us not for time, but for eternity. And heaven is a very real place. There are people here today who don't believe that. There are people who believe that heaven is fictitious. They believe that heaven is just some state of mind. But the scripture teaches clearly it's a place. The Sadducees missed this memo. They missed it because they were hardened in their hearts. They set themselves to believe a particular way. And even the truth of scripture would not change their hearts. Heaven is a real place. I heard uh, someone say this past week that heaven's just a state of the mind. It's just a state of the mind. That it's some type of internal state that you can attain of bliss. It's wrong. That teaching is wrong. Heaven is a direct place. Jesus, in this same week that he's speaking these words that we just read, said, for I go to prepare what? A place for you. He didn't say, I go to prepare a state of mind. I go to make you feel a particular way. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, 
there ye may be also. Heaven is a very real place, just as real as this earth is. In fact, Paul in 2 Corinthians, we know, although he speaks of himself in the third person, received a glimpse of the third heaven. That's the heavens of heaven, the heavenly abode. And he was given that vision from God. And so when he speaks in Philippians in chapter 1, he speaks authoritatively as he begins to compare life on earth and life in heaven. Life on earth has a purpose and it's good. But he says that life in heaven is better by far. But in that same context in Philippians 1, he says, I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. Now, when we go from one place to another place, what do we do? We depart from that first place. And so heaven is a very real place. Do not be fooled by those who would challenge or discredit the reality that heaven is a valid place. It is a real place. But not only that, heaven is a better place. Paul says, I desire to depart and to be with Christ in heaven, which is better by far. I want to take just a couple of moments and we're going to, in just a couple of moments, look specifically at this challenge and how Jesus answers it. But the real issue with the Sadducees was this. They didn't believe in heaven. For, for the Sadducees, this was as good as it got. And there are a lot of people in our world today. You work with them, you interact with them, maybe you socialize with them, and they do not believe in heaven. They believe that this is all that there is. What a sad thing to think that people believe that. Because heaven is not only a place, but as Paul says, it is a place by far better. Better than what we're experiencing. Uh, my father-in-law right now is struggling with advanced dementia. And Karen and I, uh, as she prays, she prays the Lord would take him. It's a better place than here. Now, we would love to have him here, don't get me wrong, but we wouldn't have him suffer. Why would we have him suffer here if he knows the Lord? He's going to be in a place that is better by far. Heaven is better. And while we grieve the loss of loved ones, we don't do so without hope. We do so knowing that if they have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, they're in a place that's better by far. It is a place. I want to look real quickly at five things, and there are more, but this is just representative. It is a place of continued fruitfulness. Continued fruitfulness. I love summer tomatoes. I love homegrown tomatoes. I love James Loveday's tomatoes. He grew them in this big 55-gallon drum. Man, they were good. I don't know what he did, how they fertilized them. He tried to explain it to me. I didn't understand. I just knew they tasted good. I love tomatoes out of the garden. I love tomatoes in season. I hate tomatoes out of season. I hate them. I hate to go to the store in December and buy tomatoes. And first, once you can cut through them and you feel like you need a power knife in order to do that, then when you eat it, it tastes about like that pew or that bench back there. It just does not taste like a real tomato. How many times have we said, oh, that we could have that fruit in season? Do you realize that heaven is a place of continual fruitfulness. Revelation 22.2 says, The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, bearing fruit 
seasonally? No. Every month of the season. Heaven is a place of continued fruitfulness. It is also a place that doesn't need the sun. Think about that continual fruitfulness. And uh, I don't understand all about photosynthesis, but I do know this. The sun plays an important role in it. But when in heaven, we don't need the sun. You know why? Because God himself provides the light. The light of the world is a light. There'll be no darkness. Uh, there'll be no need for rest. We will be clothed with heavenly bodies at the Lord's return. It is a place with no need of the sun. It is a place of no harm and no pain. Revelation 21.4 says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There's a land that we're waiting, and, and, and there's, it's the sweet by and by, which by and the way was not in the songbook of the Sadducees, but is the songbook of the Bible because we wait for that place of no harm and no pain. It's a place of security. There'll be no need to lock our doors in that place. There'll be no need for us to keep our head on a swivel, being alert to anyone trying to harm us because it will be a place of God's protection. It's a place of life forever. As Jesus is challenging this group that's questioning him here in Luke chapter 20, he says in verse 36 about his children, about those who have believed, for they can no longer die. In other words, for a Christian, that Christian will die once physically, but he or she will never die again. The authority, on the authority of God's word will no longer die. Verse 38, uh, he, he further speaks about it. He says that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living because of all are living to him. And, and he goes back to the time of Moses there in verse 37, when Moses indicated in the passage of the burning bush and God is called the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, not the God of dead people, but those who are alive. It is a place of life forever. I can go on and on about this place, heaven, that is described to us in Scripture, about how great it is. But I wonder today, are you going there? Are you going to heaven? Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you come to the end of yourself and say, God, I'm tired of running my life. I'm tired of try, trying to earn my way. I believe Jesus died for me. I believe he arose from the dead. And because of his resurrection, Lord, I believe you will raise me in the last day and I'll be in heaven. If you've not secured that today, why not? Do you believe the word of God? Yes, pastor, I believe the word of God. Wouldn't you trust in him well I want you to see a third truth heaven is a place where Jesus is glorified so now we get to the challenge of the Pharisees and the scenario that they present is a hypothetical situation I guess it could happen but to be honest it's an exaggeration there's a woman who's married and she has seven different husbands. The six husbands die. The seventh one must be living when she dies. Then they all die. And, and these Sadducees who were trying to trap Jesus said, now, which one's wife is she? Now, what they're referring to is part of the Old Testament Jewish law. It's called the Leveret Marriage. 
Now, the Leverett marriage, and you can read about it, at least I know in one place, there are multiple places in Deuteronomy chapter 25. And what would happen was this. If a brother, if a man were to die and, and die childless, it would be the responsibility of his brother to take his wife and to have child after that brother died. You say, well, that's gross. That's weird. In our culture, it is. We would not probably think of that, all right? But in the Jewish culture, we need to remember there were families, there were clans, there were tribes. And, and so there was much uh, intertwining of that. And so there were two reasons that a man was to take his deceased brother's wife to bear children. For one, he would keep that, fan, that man's name going. In other words, the name of his brother. Even though it would be his seed that provided that child, that child would carry the name of his deceased brother. But also it did something else. We understand it as we study about Zelophehad's daughters. It kept balance among families and among tribes so that this wife wouldn't go and marry outside of the tribe and outside of the clan, outside of the family, and then there would be a lack of balance. And so God gave this for a purpose, to perpetuate the deceased man's name and to maintain balance in the number of the tribes. So the basic questions of the Sadducees understanding this, they didn't believe it, you see, because they didn't believe in following it. They were liberal in their thoughts, but they're saying, okay, if heaven exists, then in this scenario, whose wife of these seven men would she be in heaven? They thought they had Jesus. But Jesus pivots and answers clearly and he teaches us truth about marriage in heaven. There's no marriage in heaven. There's not marrying and giving marriage. I've said before, and y'all chuckle, Karen's not going to be my wife in heaven. She's just going to be my hottest sister in Christ. But there will not be marriage and giving in marriage. Now, this life on earth is marked by marriage, but heaven will not be that way. This dispensation, this time period has marriage, but heaven does not. Now, not everyone on this earth will marry or at this current time is married. My daughter is single and, and she's not married. I, my oldest son is married. Not everyone will marry. Not everyone does marry, but marriage is God's provision for many people on this earth. And it carries out a distinct purpose in the here and now, a purpose we're going to see in a moment that's not necessary in heaven. There, there are many fold purposes uh, for marriage, but I love Dennis Rainey in his book, Preparing for Marriage, which is the textbook that I use for premarital counseling. He gives three main reasons uh, that God has uh, issued forth marriage. The first and primary is to mutually complement one another. In other words, um, this morning, if I had not had a wife, I would not have been quite as presentable. Now, you say you're not that presentable now, but what I'm saying is my collar was out like that, and I was saying, Karen, can you fix this? Can you get it right? In other words, 
we have a marriage partner that we can depend upon to help us. It's not good, Genesis 2.18 said, for man to be alone, I will create a helper suitable for him. In other words, as God created Adam, he looked out over all the other creation, there was no one compatible. And, and, and again, it's not that everyone would marry, but one of the purposes of marriage is that the partners, the marriage, uh, the husband and wife would complement, C-O-M-P-L-E-M-E-N-T. We need to complement the other one, I am also. But the second is to multiply godly legacy. Not everyone is married and not everyone will have children. But I will say this, if you don't have children, you still are given the responsibility in your marriage to be a witness to the next generation. And, and, and so, but one of the purposes is to multiply godly legacy. Now we know that you know, people can get pregnant outside of marriage and all of that, but God's purpose is within the context of a loving marriage that, that a child be born and be raised in such a way to fear God, to love God, to honor God, and so to multiply godly legacy is, is part of God's intent. The third is to mirror God's image. If you're a Christian and you're married, your marriage should be a testimony of the Lord's love for the church. In fact, in Ephesians, when, when um, Paul is writing about the relationship of Jesus to believers, he uses the context of the institution of marriage, the husband to the wife. And so we are to mirror God's image. And in effect, through our marriages, we are to be a witness to young and old alike about the love of God for them. Now, each of these is accomplished on this earth, but each is not needed in heaven. I want to look at them in the reverse, mirror God's image. We won't need a mirror in heaven. To, we won't need an image because we're going to see him face to face. So there's no need to mirror his image when he's there. He's the light. We will see him even as we are seen. Secondly, to multiply a godly legacy. There won't be any births in heaven. There won't be any need to provide a structure for kids to train them up in the Lord because they're going to be in the presence of the Lord. They'll be experiencing the fullness. There won't be a deficiency in this area to, to mutually complement one another. That's the third reason. It's important to know that God created marriage for human deficiency. He looked and he said, it wasn't good. I need to supplement here. I need to prepare that. But in the heavenly state, there won't be any need for that. There's one other thing I want to note, and if you're not married, you may say amen. But if you have your Bibles, would you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as we look at uh, this, and that's moving toward the back. This time, we don't know exactly what the crisis may well have been, uh, but we know the church had the potential of threat. And so Paul is writing the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and he says in verse 32, I want you to be without concerns. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the married man is concerned about the things of the world how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. 
The unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord so that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But the married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. I'm saying this for your own benefit, not to put any restraint on you, but to promote what is proper so you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. What is this saying? Again, God loves the institution of marriage, but Paul gives a practical argument on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is the married person has concern for the Lord, but also the husband, all right? The unmarried person doesn't have that. Let me illustrate it to you this way. Let's say I'm in one part of the house and Karen's in the other part of the house having her quiet time with the Lord. I don't know if she's having her quiet time. And I say, Karen, can we eat some, uh, can we have some supper here? Well, all of a sudden I've interrupted her time with the Lord, okay? If she were on her own, she might not have had that interruption. It's not criticizing marriage, but what it's saying is that on this earth, while marriage is good, while it's God's provision, it's not perfect because there are even some distractions of that. That being said, if you're married, stay married in the Lord. If you're married to an unbeliever, the Bible is clear. Stay married. Do not divorce that one. Stay in it. Stay in it. Now, if your um, spouse abandons you, is, is unfaithful to you, and, and you know, you're not responsible in that, but all within your being, stay in it. Stay in it. But as we look at all of these purposes to mutually complement, to mirror God's image, to multiply godly legacy, they won't be needed in heaven. And so we won't have it. This institution that God has provided to support us and to help us won't be necessary at that time. Let me illustrate it this way. When I was young, my maternal grandfather, Randall Wooldridge, bought a 1970 Impala. It was forest green. And it's the first time I ever sat in a car that had power windows. They lasted about three months and then they went bad. They didn't have it down back then. But in that car were not only power windows, which probably the reason they broke so quick was I and my siblings, he had three grandchildren. We probably played up and down with it way too much. But in that car was also an eight-track tape player. And it was amazing. It was amazing because you could go from the middle of song one and with one push of the button go to the middle of song two. And you couldn't go to the beginning of song two. But you could go to the middle of song two. You do not see eight-track tapes today. They're archaic. You might see them in, in a novelty store. You might find them in an antique store. But they're not needed anymore. When we get to heaven, marriages which are so good and needed now will not be needed then. You see, the Sadducees not only had their theology wrong, their whole process of thinking was wrong. Their thinking was this hypothetical situation, this woman, who would she be married? They had a man-centric view of heaven. How are my needs going to be met? Who am I going to answer to? What am I going to do? That's not what heaven's about. Heaven is about God being glorified, about him being lifted up, so their thought processes were totally wrong. One addendum before we move on, and I can't help 
but go there. But we need to understand people, when they die, do not become angels, not in any state. If an infant dies, that infant does not become an angel in heaven. Now, I'm not telling you go and call a person a heretic if they say that, because they might be sincere. But we need to understand in our own mind, redeemed individuals here are redeemed in heaven. The scriptures say angels long to look into what we experience. And so a lot of times people will say, God got another angel. I'm not saying, you know, handle it with grace. But in your mind, you may need to process that biblically, which is not true. I'm not saying embarrass somebody in the setting, but you might take them aside and say, look, that's not what the Bible says. Because it says here that they're like the angels, but like the angels means they don't have an end. Like the angel, it means they do not marry. It, it's picking out that attribute. It's not saying they actually become that separate created being. But what's heaven all about? It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. You take the greatest worship service you've ever experienced emotionally, spiritually, physically, mentally, and multiply that hundreds of thousands of times. And that's what heaven is going to be like. Going back to my opening illustration, I can't remember. I block out a lot of bad memories, but... I can't remember all the details when I showed up at that hotel and said, I think we have reservations, and she said, no, I bet you probably could have bought me for a nickel. I mean, I was just stunned. But that was just one night stay at a hotel. I wonder today, have you made your reservation in heaven? Every one of us, just like I stood before that clerk, is going to stand before God one day. And the question will be, are you going to heaven or not? And let me tell you, if you say, well, I'm a good person, I try to do good, I'm better than that person, your reservation is not secure. It's, it's not good. Because you cannot get to heaven by being good. You get to heaven by humbling yourself. We studied in Sunday school about humility today, humbling yourself before the Lord and saying, God, I can't save myself. You saved me. I don't want to run my life. You run my life. You become my Lord. You use me for your purposes. I pray today that when that time comes and you stand before God, in the possibility of this better and certain place is before you, that you would have the right answer. And the answer is Jesus. Answer Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we look to your word today, Lord, as certain as we are in this place now, heaven is a real place. It is not a figure of speech. It is not some figment of someone's imagination, some nebulous, obscure state of being. But Lord Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And Lord, not only is it a place, but it is a place better by far, a place of continued life, fruitfulness, protection. Father, if there be any within the sound of my voice today who have not made secure their place in heaven, 
convince them through your Holy Spirit. It is not by the works of the law or by what we do, but it is by yielding ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ and his grace, repenting of our sin and trusting him that our eternity is secure. Lord, seal the truth of your word in our hearts today about heaven, about the relationship of marriage to heaven. And Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.